The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I love that we have this week where um, everything's a little bit different, including the versions that we're reading from, whether it's the screen or, or reading out loud, which is actually an awesome opportunity. Uh, I think that Marie was reading from the right one, and I don't think that it's the person's fault. I think that it, it, something just got lost in translation, but that's exactly the point here, is that um, we have the Bible, which was originally written in Greek, and we have like all these different versions of it. And I love that we got a different, get to, got to read one that's a little bit different, and also this, uh, because we see that it basically said the exact same thing, just in like different order and whatnot, and there's all these different philosophies to translating the Bible. And it's just a good reminder that the Bible was not written in English. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, I preached on um, the, God's grand multi-ethnic uh, plan for the, the world, and his vision for the church to be multi-ethnic. And I had one of, and I talked about how in heaven, every tribe and tongue will be singing in their own languages, praises to Jesus. And afterwards, uh, one of our uh, brothers who's a member here, he's, his, uh, Spanish is his heart language, um, but he speaks English very naturally. He sounds, uh, has an American accent and everything. But he came and, and he, he was in tears and just shared, I have never thought about that that I'm going to be able to sing in Spanish. I just thought that I would be living in English like everyone else. Um, and it's just a, an amazing reality to remember that God uses all different people 
to, to bring glory to him. And the Bible itself, it was written, the New Testament was written in Greek, but that actually isn't the language that Jesus was speaking. Jesus was speaking Aramaic. So there's a lot of different things that were happening here. And the words that we get are still really dependable and reliable because they've been, you can see from the different translations, you can look at it with totally different theories of translation and you're gonna get much the same thing. It was really great. Anyways, that's an aside. That was free this morning. Um, When you think about this, let me just ask you a question. Is there a such thing as a typical Christian? Like sometimes, okay, so I lived in Louisville, Kentucky when I was doing seminary, and Louisville is like the Christian capital of the world. I mean, we, we kind of got to, I was just there for a conference not too long ago, and we kind of got this thing going on where if you walk into a coffee shop, you can kind of look around and be like, mm, that person's a Christian over there. You can just kind of like sniff them out, um, usually because there's like an open Bible and, and like a cup of coffee and they're trying to get the perfect Instagram picture, you know, at the coffee shop. Um, we have this idea that there is a typical person that is Christian. But when you look at the Bible, what you actually see is that Jesus calls all kinds of different people from different backgrounds. And he calls people with different personalities and different experiences. In fact, Christianity is the most diverse religious movement in the history of the world. When you think about different religious movements, most of them have a, an ethnic epicenter. But when you think about the ethnic epicenter of Christianity, what is it? Well, don't you dare say white or European. That would be so Western of you to think in that way. I mean, the church grew throughout all the Mediterranean and the history of the church in Africa is just as long, if not longer, than the history of the church in Europe. So it's, it's really a, quite a diverse movement. In fact, if you look at Pew Research, they said that you'll essentially find equal numbers of self-identifying Christians today living in Europe, in North America, in Latin America, and in Sub-Saharan Africa. Isn't that amazing? That Christianity has no geographical home. That it's just a diverse group of people that are following after Jesus. According to one Purdue University sociologist, Christianity is growing so quickly in China that by the year 2030, there may very well be more Chinese Christians than North American Christians. Which is just amazing to think about. Now, there's a lot more people over there, but it's just an amazingly quick-growing movement. Today, we're continuing our series on the book of John. And, and what we see actually happening in this passage is we have two, two different types of people who are coming to know Jesus. You have the spiritually inquisitive people, the people who have spiritual interest. And then you have the skeptical people, the skeptically reluctant people who don't really think that Jesus is who many people think he, that he is. And so we're going to look at these two different types of people who come to know Jesus. First, the spiritually inquisitive. I'm just going to walk through the passage as I always do. Uh, and so if you have your Bible, you're welcome to walk along with me or you can just um, follow along as I, as I preach it. Uh, verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. 
Now, it doesn't say who these disciples are initially. Uh, We do later on find out that one of these two disciples is Andrew, the brother of uh, Peter, the much more famous brother, okay? This is like the third Manning brother. You know, there actually is a third Manning brother, but he didn't, like, make it to the NFL. So this is the brother that... Andrew is much less talked about, but his brother is Peter. And we, we, most of us, if you grew up in church, you're familiar with Peter. It doesn't say who the other disciple is. Many scholars uh, like to conjecture that this could be the author of this. We, I have said that my position on this is that the author of the book of John is John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, one of the three in the inner ring of Jesus, who he never met. And one of the reasons why I think it is that is because he's trying to tell this story from a third party perspective. He's trying to tell the story. And so he intentionally doesn't really... Uh, identify himself in it. And so the, conspicuously, the John, the son of Zebedee, who is one of the most uh, prevalent characters throughout the other gospels, is not mentioned in this one. And so maybe he's just kind of in, intentionally leaving himself out of the story. That's a conjecture, though. I have no idea who the other disciple is. It could be someone else. Who knows? Anyways, um, Andrew and the other disciple are coming, are following after John the Baptist. And uh, they're, they're standing there. So this is, we're talking about John the Baptist here. We, we did all last week about John the Baptist. And these are two people that are already following a religious guru of the day. John the Baptist, or as we affectionately call him, JTB, around here. Uh, JTB has been going around and proclaiming uh, the good news about the Lamb of God, who is Jesus. Last week we saw him pointing to Jesus and saying, after me is one whose sandals I am not worthy of untying. And so these are two disciples of JTB, and then they're standing with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, he sees Jesus walking by, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. No, this is not, I'm not doing the same verses as last week, if you were here last week. He just says it again. Okay, this just must be what he says. This is his greeting for Jesus. Like, what's up? It's the Lamb of God. Look who it is. Look who it is, that Lamb. Um, And the two disciples of JTB, they hear this. They're spiritually inquisitive people. And what do they do? They switch allegiances immediately. They just go over to Jesus, and they start asking Jesus questions. They're like, well, he seems to be pointing to you, so I'm going to go to you. And I just think this is a great reminder for us that not every conversion story is dramatic. My conversion story when I first came to know Jesus was not dramatic. I grew up in a home that did not go to church much, but Jesus was always assumed to be real, to be God in my home. And then when I was 14, I went to like a youth church camp And I met Jesus for the first time. My heart was just brought awake to my own sin and my need for Jesus. It was not a dramatic conversion. I was not worshiping Satan or doing drugs as a 14-year-old. I didn't have to turn from a lot of the same, a lot of the things that we hear these dramatic stories from. But that's a good thing, okay? Don't despise your story just because it's not dramatic. Now, if you did come from a dramatic story, Praise God, let's share your testimony, let's share your story. But just because you didn't come from that doesn't mean that it's not a a miracle. Look, it's a miracle anytime Jesus saves a sinner like you or me. That's a miracle. And so we can be thankful for the non-dramatic stories. I hope my children have non-dramatic stories where the the gospel is taught in their home from a very early age and they never really wander from that. That's my prayer. But it's all in the Lord's hands. And so we trust him with it. 
I, I um, never made an Excel spreadsheet to compare all the religions uh, to see which one works for me. It's just I met Jesus, much like these guys. They're spiritually inquisitive people, and they come to Jesus, and they start asking him questions. Verse 37, the two disciples heard John the Baptist say this, and they followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them and said to them, what are you seeking? Now, Jesus is a master of language, as we'll find out as we go through here. He almost never says anything that doesn't have two meanings, all right? So Jesus could just be asking these guys, hey, what do you want? What are you seeking? What do you want? But isn't it true that Jesus also asks each of us, before we can come to him, what we really want out of life? What are you seeking out of life? That's, that's the question that he has here. Before we can follow Jesus, he demands that we articulate what we really want out of life. And here's the reality, my friends. If you're looking for wealth or fame or health, you're in the wrong place. Jesus does not guarantee any of those things. But if you're looking for religious satisfaction, for the satisfaction of a relationship with God, salvation from your sin, freedom from conviction, from the power of the Holy Spirit being filled, being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are absolutely right. If you're looking for joy that is not dependent upon wealth, you're in the right place. That is what Jesus offers. And the two said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? I love it. They don't even answer his question. They, he says, what do you want? He's like, and they say, where are you staying? Obviously, they want to follow him. That is what's happening here. They're insistent in following Jesus at this point. In verse 39, Jesus says to them, come and you will see. What a, what a simple invitation that Jesus gives, and often the invitation that Jesus gives at the beginning of many of our spiritual lives, is it not? Come and you will see. Now he could just be talking about come and see where I'm staying. You'll see my house, my crib, whatever it might be. But he might be inviting them to spiritual life and the true thing that they are desiring. Because the reality is the things that we most desire in this life those desires we misplace on things in this world. But when we seek first Jesus and his kingdom, we will actually find what our souls are longing for. And so Jesus gives us the invitation to come and see, to come and see, simple invitation. After staying with Jesus for just a short time, Andrew is absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he goes to tell his brother Peter, verse 41, he found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And so Andrew is the first among millions and millions and millions of people who have met Jesus and then felt compelled to tell their friends and their family the powerful reality of who Jesus is. D.A. Carson puts it like this. He says, the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness of friend to friend, brother to brother. When we meet Jesus, he oftentimes sends us out to share with others that we have met Jesus, the one who has been written about, the one who is God, the good news that we have to share. One statistic I saw 
uh, this week about uh, why people start attending church is this. Um, 2% of people attend a church because they saw an advertisement. Um, 6% of people who are invited by a pastor would attend a church. 6% of people who were invited by a door invitation, you know, going door to door, might attend a church. But then the vast majority of people who go to church are invited by a friend. That is the vast majority. It's over 80% of people who end up going to a church are invited by a friend. And so what we see here is still the pattern today, that the most effective method of sharing the good news of Jesus is friend to friend, brother to brother, sister to sister. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and he said, you're Simon, the son of John. I'm gonna call you Cephas. Jesus, Jesus does that thing that only the most extroverted of us can do, which is like give someone a totally different name the moment you meet them. Uh, have you, I don't know if you've ever, the, the most extroverted people I've met, this happens usually like one out of every 50 people I meet. Uh, I say, hi, my name's Fletcher. And they say, Fletcher, I'm gonna call you Fletch. Is that okay? I'm like, whatever, man. Um, like, if, if you feel the need to give me a different name, that's fine. My mom gave me Fletcher, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy with it. It goes fine. Um, but that's fine. So Jesus immediately meets him. And usually for me, if I'm going to give someone a, a nickname, I have to get to know that person kind of well. I'm a little more, I'm like halfway between the extrovert and introvert. Um, and so it takes me a little while. I have to have a little bit of re- relational intimacy before I can be like, yo, I'm going to call you something else. Um, but maybe that already exists for Jesus. You know, Jesus, he, he meets Peter, Simon, and he's like, I already know you, which is something we're gonna be seeing as a theme here. And he gives him a new name and a new identity. Peter means rock. And later on, Jesus would be, tell Peter that he is the rock by which he would build his church. Isn't this what Jesus does for us so well? The call to follow Jesus is the call to a new identity, and to a new name. You know, we get questions pretty often um, because we are in Somerville, and the questions go like, hey, is this type of person welcome at this church? Uh, is X type of person welcome? At, and that's not a new gender identity. That's just me saying X, okay? Uh, is this type of person, uh, that was a joke that really didn't land very well at all. Um, uh, is this type of person related at... Um, I guess, you, you know, so, yeah, anyways. Um, is this type of person welcome to this church? And the answer is always, unless they're gonna like be very disruptive, uh, the answer is always, yes, we love people because Jesus loves people. All people are welcome at this church. The, the, now, if you mean, does that mean that when I go to this church, that I'll be accepted and approved and affirmed in everything I already believe about the world. Well, it's like, well, no, that's not what Jesus does. Because what Jesus does is he welcomes anyone, everyone, he welcomes them all, and then he asks, what do you want out of life? And then he helps them to see how they can be remade into the image of Christ. And so Jesus welcomes everyone, but he leaves no one where they are. I don't care if you come in here and you look like the typical Christian. You can, God is not about changing 
uh, people of different sexual identities, gender identities, any more than one another. We all must come to Jesus with an open hand and say, whatever you want, I will follow. And that is the message of the gospel, is to say, hey, I will give you full life, eternal life, but it will require you to be committed to following after me. And so the journey of following Jesus is a journey of change, a new identity. That is what Jesus does. Well, I need to change something that I deem as core to my identity and person if I go to this church. The answer is always yes. No matter who you are, the answer is always yes. If you're going to follow Jesus, he gives you a new identity. He changes your desires and he leads you to following him. So that's the the spiritually inquisitive people. The people that come to know Jesus And it's not that big of a jump in in many times. It doesn't feel that way. But then we also have the skeptically resistant people. And maybe you were one of these. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, I love this because it just shows the diversity in the way that Jesus calls people. The other two disciples found Jesus. Now it says that Jesus found Philip. Sometimes Jesus finds you, sometimes you find Jesus, however you want to put it. The good thing is that you're found and Jesus is found and we know one another. Sometimes people seek out Jesus, sometimes Jesus seeks people out. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Like Andrew, just a few verses Earlier, Philip is now sharing the good news about who he has found, this Jesus Christ character, with his friends. And so he's saying, hey, this is the guy who satisfies, this is the one we've been waiting on. This is the guy that satisfies every prophecy that we have. It's amazing that he came to this realization so quickly. It must have been so obvious to them as they met Jesus. And so here's how Nathaniel responds. Nathaniel said to him, he picked up on one word in there. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good, forget everything else that Philip just said, you know, the one who Moses in the law also pointed to and prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so Nathaniel says, Nazareth? (laughs) Can anything come out of that place? Now, uh, Nathaniel is from a small town as well called Cana. And it's in the same general region as Nazareth. And so it could be, it's probably one of two things, his reaction here. Um, maybe uh, Nazareth is a really podunk town, and it probably is, but is it any worse than Cana? Eh, probably not. But it's not the big city that you would expect the prophet to come from. He's from the middle of nowhere, Nazareth. And so he could just be referring to that, but Nathaniel might also be referring to like kind of a a rivalry between the two towns. You know, I might talk trash about Cambridge. That's not because I think Cambridge people are that much worse than us, just a little bit. Um, But I still love Cambridge and I recognize that, you know, it's pretty much the same thing. And so maybe that's what Nathaniel's getting after when he says this. Regardless, Nazareth is a surprising place for the Messiah to come from. And so Nathaniel is skeptical. And friends, here's the reality is that people look at Christianity like Nathaniel looked at Nazareth. 
People today say, can anything good come, out, come from Christianity? Really? You're a Christian? This? They're skeptical immediately. Christianity is usually dismissed before it is even truly considered. You see, Nathaniel, he did not even consider Jesus before he dismissed him. He's just like, Nazareth, ugh, seen enough, heard enough, I'm done. I'm not in on that. People roll their eyes today at, their, at the idea of Christianity. One pastor puts it like this. Christianity was from Nazareth then, and it is from Nazareth today. Our friends might say, I can dismiss Christianity. They wouldn't actually say this. This is just what they might think in their head. I can dismiss Christianity as an option without any sort of careful consideration because I know what kind of people believe in Christianity, and I'm not like one of them. In uh, 2012 or 13, uh, a man named Jonathan um, Haidt, wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. I've talked about it a few times over the years, but it's been a few years, so maybe you, you haven't been here as I've talked about it. It's a really important book. He is a non-religious uh, Jewish person, and I think that it is one of the most important books that has been written in the past 15 years, and one of the most influential to my faith in many ways, to helping me understand the way that people work. I would highly suggest uh, every Christian, to read that book. I just think it is so helpful. The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Disagree About Religion and Politics is what it's called. It's a great read. Um, and he makes the argument that people make ethical and moral decisions based upon intuition and not based upon reason. We like to pretend that we're really reasonable people, but the reality is we make decisions with our heart, with our gut, and not with our head. And the illustration that he gives uh, to demonstrate this is he talks about a rider and an elephant. And he says that's how we make decisions. It's like a rider, a person, sitting upon an elephant. The elephant, I don't know if you've ever ridden an elephant, um, but for those of us who haven't, um, the elephant's going to do whatever the elephant's going to do. Okay? The rider really doesn't have any control over the elephant. It is a, an imagined control that he has over it. And the rider in this situation is the reason. He imagines that he has control over the elephant. That's really him who's telling the elephant where to go. But if the elephant wants to go somewhere, he's going to go there. And so what the rider must do is make excuses for where the elephant went. Oh, the elephant just ran through that wall. Well, I have to make a rational excuse for why I actually drove that elephant through the wall. And he says that this is the way that we make decisions in our life. It's not actually that we've weighed all of the options and weighed the evidence. It's my heart was wanting this, and so I made an excuse to make it reasonable. I think that oftentimes Christianity is dismissed not because people have looked at the facts, but because Jesus is from Nazareth. Because Christianity might not be cool or it might not seem like the most reasonable. They don't want to be like those people, whoever those people might be. And so they dismiss it without even considering it as an option. So how does Philip respond to Nathaniel who says, Nazareth? Does he get in an argument about the nature of Nazareth? You know, Nathaniel, Nazareth's not that bad. They've got these things that Cana had. No, he doesn't argue. What does he say? He just says, come and see. He issues the same invitation that Jesus issues. Come and see. You just got to check it out. Why don't you give it a try? Why don't you investigate it personally? Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, 
an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Okay, I just want to point out a couple things here before we keep moving. Um, First, uh, Jesus does not feel the need to demonize people as they come to investigate him. When he speaks to Nathaniel, Nathaniel's a sinner, just like the rest of us. He needs, he needs change in his life. He's d- been dismissing Jesus without even trying it out. But Jesus doesn't say, ah, there's that sinner. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no con- deceit. Now, I don't know exactly why he labeled Nathaniel that way. But for some reason, when he said that, Nathaniel said, oh, he knows me. This man knows me. I, he sees me and he knows me. And so he asked, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I don't know the exact significance of this statement either. I don't think anybody other than Jesus and, and Nathaniel really know what was happening there and what was hap- why this was so important. But this obviously meant something to Nathaniel. And all Jesus had to do was say this, and it won him over. Friend, I don't know where you're at in your relationship with Jesus, but I know this. He sees you. He sees you. He sees you where you are. He saw you before you walked in that door today, and he knows where you're at. And that invitation is come and see. Come and see and see. This was enough to change Nathaniel's mind. And look at his response. He says, uh, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Uh, throughout the history of Israel, um, they've been, they've called themselves the son of God. Israel was known throughout the Old Testament as the son of God. And so as Jesus goes to him and says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no defeat, uh, deceit. Uh, the word for indeed means true. Behold, a true Israel. Uh, it's, um, the, it's like, uh, yeah, anyways, I'm not going to, it's the same word that you use for true, like Alethea. Um, but, the, but then when Nathaniel recognizes who Jesus is, he says, you are the son of God. Isn't that funny? That, look, a true Israelite, and then Nathaniel says, no, you are the true Israel who's here calling me. He recognizes who Jesus is is as the king sometimes it's helpful to remember that jesus can save even the harshest of his critics how many of us know someone who has dismissed christianity maybe we are that person how many of us have a close relationship with someone who is ardently against christianity against christ i can tell you story after story of people who have been firmly against christ who have made it their life's mission to disprove Jesus. But then Jesus wins them over, just two brief ones. Lee Strobel, he was um, a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He won many awards in journalism. I mean, just a a well-known and well-respected journalist. One year, his wife uh, became a Christian. And being the journalist that he is, he has a Yale degree, but he has a Yale law degree, law degree. And so uh, he was like, I'm going to investigate this and look at, the, look at the facts behind Christianity. And so he went on an endeavor, 
as a journalist to do investigative journalism and to show her how there's no reason or rationale to becoming a Christian. She, he was trying to convince her otherwise, or he had somewhat of an open mind. And as he did it, he actually became convinced that not only that God exists, but that Jesus is the son of God and was resurrected from the dead as he looked at the evidence. And so he gave his life to Christ and he wrote a book about it called The Case for Christ that millions of people have read, it's been given away. It's a great read, very helpful. Let me tell you another story. A woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Now Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield in the late 90s was a tenured professor at Syracuse University teaching English and women's studies. She was not the type of person who you would typically think is a Christian. She um, actually made it a, a big study and a big a part of her work was in, she was interested by fundamentalist Christians and why they vote the way they do and why they behave the way that they do. So she wrote, she was working on an article, she had done some research, she wrote something for her local newspaper. And after she wrote for her local newspaper about the dangers of fundamentalism, she um, received a lot of responses in the mail. You know, this is before the internet was really that big of a thing, so people were still sending physical letters. And so she got all of these physical letters in her office and she had one bin for all the praise mail that she would receive. And then she had another bin called the rubbish bin for all the hate mail that she would receive. And every time she got a letter, she would put the letter in one of these two bins until she got one letter from a local pastor of the Reformed Presbyterian Church who was an elderly man named Ken. And in the letter, she couldn't decide if it was a praise or a hate. He was writing so precisely and inviting her to consider Christianity and inviting her to visit his church. Yet he was being courteous and kind and complimenting many aspects of what she had researched. She did not know which bin to put it in. And so she just laid it in the middle of her desk and it haunted her. It just stayed there for weeks or for days at least until one day she picked up the letter and she decided that she needed to write back. And she, she began a relationship with Ken and his wife that would last over two years as she carefully considered Christianity. She would visit their church, looked very out of place at their church. She would, uh, this is a very conservative church um, that had many older people. She was not that old at this point. She, um, she would visit them in their home. And they were so considerate of her. She, in her book, which is a great book, Confessions of an Unlikely Convert, uh, she writes about visiting her home, their home, and they would be so considerate that she was a vegan at the time. They would make vegan meals without even really consulting her. That she was eco-conscious uh, at the time. This is radical for the late 90s. She, uh, so they wouldn't run the air conditioning when she was at their home. They would have the windows propped open and uh, would, would do that. They were just so considerate and kind. One day, Rosaria actually met Jesus. And she describes her conversion as a train wreck. I mean, this is a woman who's really devoted much of her life to things that are antithetical to Christianity. She lost most of what she had worked hard to achieve in life. She could no longer continue her position in the things that she was teaching at the school in the way that she was teaching it. But then she gave it all to Jesus and drank deeply of the solace of the Holy Spirit. And that is the invitation that Jesus offers to each and every one of us. No one 
is beyond the saving power of Jesus. I can tell, go on to tell you stories about professors at MIT, at Harvard, at Oxford, at Cambridge, who have come to know Christ. This is not something that you have to check your brain in at the door to come to. He works on both the rational and the deep emotional level. He is a kind savior in that way. Whether you're spiritually inquisitive or skeptically resistant, Jesus invites you to come and see. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said these things to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? Jesus is like, you've seen nothing yet, Nathaniel. Those of you who have been following Jesus for some time, isn't that true? Doesn't he give us more and more, more and more from when we first meet him? Verse 51, the last verse. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I'll I'll explain this and then wrap up. Um, I enjoy stand-up comedy, okay? I would probably get in trouble if I listed all of my favorite stand-up comics at this moment, but I enjoy stand-up comedy, and the way that stand-up comedy works best is for you to have a callback, okay? You start the... You start with a joke at the, near the beginning of your, of your bit, and it has a punchline, and everybody laughs. And then when you get towards the end of the, the bit, you tell a totally different story that has the same punchline, and oh, people will erupt. It just goes crazy. Here, Jesus is kind of doing that. He's doing a callback. And what he's doing is he's referencing, and remember, Nathaniel's a true Israelite, so he would know this story. He's referencing this story from Genesis chapter 28. We know this story. If you were here last year, we did this story, and we went through the book of Genesis. Genesis 28, Jacob, one of the fathers of Israel, is um, leaving his father's home, Abraham. He had just stolen his brother's inheritance. Long story. Won't do that sermon today. Um, But he's wandering through the wilderness, and he lies down in a certain place that he'll call Bethel, and he uses a rock for a pillow, and he has a dream. And on that dream, he sees a ladder. And there's angels ascending and descending the ladder. And God is standing at the top of the ladder. And this is a huge comfort to Jacob. It's like a place where he met God. And listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, you'll see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on not a ladder, but the sun of man, Jesus' favorite nickname for himself. And so do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, Nathaniel, if you'll follow me, you'll see the fulfillment to Jacob's vision. You'll see heaven opened up, and you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending upon me. With his death and resurrection, Jesus becomes the ladder between God and man. He becomes the ladder between God and man and how we know him. He invites us to come and see, to experience this truth. Practical takeaways, just a couple sentences here. When you follow Jesus, you'll get far more than you initially thought possible. It's that good, really is. Two, Jesus can save anyone, whether you're skeptic or spiritually curious. And three, don't be ashamed of Jesus because he's from Nazareth. You can share your faith with anyone. Invite them to investigate Jesus, to come and see. Each week, we participate in a communion meal at our church, and it's one of the ways that we worship Jesus. And so we invite you, if you're a Christian, to come and participate in that. 
Friends, let's stand as we prepare our hearts to sing his praises. God, as we come to you through this communion meal, I pray for all those here who are either spiritually inquisitive or skeptically reluctant or who know people who are. Would you give us courage to follow after you, to share with our friends what you have done for us, to uh, believe and to trust that you can save anyone and that you can do all things. God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. We pray that anyone here who needs to know you would come to that saving faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.